Hello, everyone. That's Caitlin. And that's Genevieve. And welcome back to Camping is Cancelled Thanksgiving Week Edition. Ooh. I guess it won't be Thanksgiving Week when this goes out. So we hope everyone had a nice Thanksgiving. Yes. And was nice on Black Friday. Yes. Be kind. Mm -hmm. Be kind online or in person. Yes. <laughs> and if you have not listened to the episode prior which is part one of our blind read of the strange death of a sherlock holmes fanatic by david gran then you need to stop here and go listen to part one because we are going to go right into part two and nothing will make any sense if you don't listen to part one so we're going to give you half a second to stop now okay, okay. <laughs> You're done. You're done. For the rest of you, we're going to do the rest of The Strange Death of a Sherlock Holmes Fanatic. Lights out, campers. Oh, man, the mountains call my number one. I'm just a life-size lottery ticket in the hand of the one. Okay, so where we last left off is with... Gibson being informed by Edwards, who Edwards was working with Green to stop the auction. Mm, yes. Edwards said, I think he knew too much about the archive. Mm, dun, dun, dun. So a few days later, I flew to Edinburgh, where Edwards promised to share with me his findings. We had arranged to meet at a hotel on the edge of the old city. It was on a hill studded with medieval castles and covered in thin mist not far from where Conan Doyle had studied medicine under Dr. Joseph Bell, one of the models for Sherlock Holmes. Once during class, Bell held up a glass vial. Quote, This gentleman contains the most potent drug, he said. It is extremely bitter to the taste. To the class's astonishment, he touched the amber liquid, lifted a finger to his mouth, and licked it. He then declared, Not one of you has developed his power of perception. While I placed my index finger in the awful brew, it was my middle finger. <laughs> my middle finger. <laughs> I might keep that in. <laughs> that sounds like something my three-year-old would say. I I like fingle. Fingle. Yeah, it sounds like a weird. Uh, my one-year-old's in my mind too much. <laughs> it was my middle finger, a which somehow found its way into my mouth. Mm, that sounds so, weird. So he dingled his finger into the point. <laughs> Oh, oh gosh. Maybe it wasn't that they just didn't have developed powers of perception. Maybe their eyes were just bad and nobody had contacts. Nobody had eye doctors back then. <laughs> or it was like a brown bottle glass. Yeah. So it didn't matter. That'd be funny. He's just uh. like, you dumbasses. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Edwards greeted me in the hotel lobby. He is a short, pear-shaped man with wild gray sideburns and an even wilder gray beard. A history professor at the University of Edinburgh, he wore a rumpled tweed coat over a V-neck sweater and carried a knapsack on his shoulder. We sat down at the restaurant, and I waited as he rummaged through the books in his bag. Edwards, who has written numerous books, including The Quest for Sherlock Holmes, an acclaimed account of Conan Doyle's early life, began pulling out copies of Green's edited collections. Green, he said, was the world's greatest Conan Doyle expert. 
I have the authority to say it. Richard ultimately became the greatest of us all. That is a firm and definite statement of someone who knows. As he spoke, he tended to pull his chin in toward his chest so that his beard fanned out. He told me that he had met Green in 1981 while researching his book on Conan Doyle. At the time, Green was still working on his bibliography with Gibson. Even so, he had shared all his data with Edwards. That was the kind of scholar he was, he said. To Edwards, Green's death was even more baffling than the crimes in a home story. He picked up one of the Conan Doyle collections and read aloud, from a case of identity, in the cool, ironical voice of Holmes. Life is infinitely stranger than anything which the mind of man could invent. We would not dare to conceive the things which are really mere commonplaces of existence. If we could fly out of the window hand in hand, hover over the great city, gently remove the roofs, and peep in at the queer things which are going on, the strange coincidences, the plannings, the cross-purposes, the wonderful chains of events, working through generations and leading to the most out... Out... Outre? 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 It's, a, it's, it's fancy, guys. Mm-hmm. Results. It would make all fiction with its conventionalities and foreseen conclusion most stale and unprofitable. After Edwards closed the book, he explained that he had spoken frequently with Green about the Christie's sale. Our lives have been dominated by the fact that Conan Doyle had five children, three of whom became his literary heirs, Edwards said. The two boys were playboys. One of them, Dennis, was, I gather, utterly selfish. The other one, Adrian, a repulsive crook. Wow. And then there was an absolutely wonderful daughter. (laughs) That is a very intense thing to call somebody a repulsive crook. I mean, they felt very strongly about this Sherlock Holmes. I'm also honestly surprised that Conan Doyle had the time to have that many children. seemed like he didn't do anything but write. But... You can multitask. Yeah, I guess so. There is that one scene in the new Oppenheimer movie where Florence Pugh has Oppenheimer read Sanskrit to her while they're doing it because she's so turned on by his brain. (laughs) The way Caitlin is looking at me right now. Ew. She just like opens the book and she's like, read this. No. And he starts to say like what it means in English. And he's like, no, in the original Sanskrit. Oh my gosh. (laughs) It's not even a movie I would like Wikipedia the plot. (laughs) You told me enough. All you need to know is there was a bomb. Yep, that's all I know. And it was a real big one. And Cillian Murphy... Looks like he needs to get some sleep, which I hope he did (laughs) after that movie. Green, he said, had become so close to the daughter, Dame Jean, that he came to be known as the son she never had. Even though in the past, Conan Doyle's children had typically had fractious relationships with their father's biographers. In the early 1940s, for example, Adrian and Dennis had cooperated with Hesketh Pearson on Conan Doyle, His Life and Art. 
but when the book came out and portrayed Conan Doyle as, quote, the man in the street, a phrase Conan Doyle himself had used, Adrian rushed into print his own biography, The True Conan Doyle, and Dennis allegedly challenged Pearson to a duel. Dame Jean had subsequently taken it upon herself to guard her father's legacy against scholars who might present him in too stark a light. Yet she confided in Green, who had tried to balance his veneration of his subject with a commitment to the truth. Edward said that Dame Jean not only gave Green a glimpse of the treasured archive, she also asked for his help in transferring various papers to her solicitor's office. Richard told me that he had physically moved them, Edward said, so his knowledge was really quite dangerous. Hmm. Ooh. He claimed that Green was, quote, the biggest figure standing in the way of the Christie auction, since he had seen some of the papers and could testify that Dame Jean had intended to donate them to the British Library. Soon after the sale was announced, Edward said he and Green had learned that Charles Foley, Sir Arthur's great-nephew, and two of Foley's cousins were behind the sale. But neither he nor Green could understand how these distant heirs had legally obtained control of the archive. All we are clear about was that there was a scam and that clearly someone was robbing stuff that should go to the British Library, Edward said. He added, this is not a hypothesis, it was quite certain in our minds. That seems like such a no-brainer to me that documents of that level of historical value Mm -hmm. should absolutely be in a museum. Yeah. Like Indiana Jones always says about those artifacts, it belongs in a museum. Oh, gosh. But it's so true because some rich asshole just buys it and then they put it in a vault along with all of their other things and And they never see the light of day. Yeah. Yeah. And what a waste. And, or maybe they want it for themselves so that they can. I know people will lend things to museums, but you still have that asset. Yeah. Because you own it. And so I could see where, but there's also no guarantee because once a physical person owns it, they can do whatever they want with it. So it just seems much more beneficial to the world for it to belong to something that Mm -hmm. is designed to preserve and protect those things. But money is always more important. Money, Mm -hmm. money, money. money. I mean, I'm not going to lie. If I had a bazillion jillion dollars i would buy sherlock holmes's suitcase of stuff (laughs) and then i'd be like i will lend it to the british library (laughs) (laughs) only if there's a massive gold plaque with my name underneath and my venmo handle (laughs) oh little (laughs) (laughs) with what's that oh blessings Blessings, Genevieve's Venmo handle. Yes. Edwards also had little doubt that somebody had murdered his friend. He noted the circumstantial details, Green's mention of threats to his life, his reference to the American who was, quote, trying to bring him down. Some observers, he said, had speculated that Green's death might have been the result of autoerotic asphyxiation, but he told me that there were no signs that Green was engaged in sexual activity at the time. He added that garroting is typically a brutal method of execution. 
a method of murder which a skilled professional would use. Mm. Ugh, like, out of all the things you could do. Yeah. That, ugh. Isn't that what happened to John Benet Ramsey? She oh, was garroted. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. We mm. should cover that case sometime because I the never get I never get tired of talking about it. The brother did it. You say the brother I did it. I think the brother did it. I agree accidentally and then they tried to like cover it up. Mm -hmm. But maybe we'll do a whole that would have to be a two parter oh, also. Yeah. That'd be an in depth one. Yeah. What's more, Green had no known history of depression. Mm. Edwards pointed out that Green, on the day before he died, had made plans with another friend for a holiday in Italy the following week. Moreover, he said, if Green had killed himself, there surely would have been a suicide note. It was not inconceivable that a man who kept notes on everything would not have left one. Hmm. That's true. Yeah, and just to play a little devil's advocate, the, the notes thing, that's definitely a big thing, but... All the time, all you hear is that when people decide that they're going to complete suicide, it's like a split-second decision. Mm. They usually don't meticulously plan it out right. unless it's a case where maybe you have a terrible terminal illness or something, you know, some, it does but happen. Normally there's some writings or like, you know. Yeah. And where it says there was no other signs that Green was engaged in sexual activity at the time, immediately my mind starts churning being like, what would those signs be? And all I can think of was that he was like, you know, had clothing removed oh. because he would have been self-pleasuring if he was doing autoerotic right. asphyxiation. And that would be the only thing that I would think of. But he was fully clothed yeah. according to what. Like everything, there's nothing to me that, like I, in my mind, we don't know anything, obviously. He was yeah. murdered. Like there's nowhere in my brain where I think he did it to himself. No, no. But the fact that they're still saying, yes, he definitely killed himself. Mm -hmm. And the official police report is what's weird. Because if it was somebody that was so well known and so closely tied to a figure that was so big, like Sherlock Holmes and Conan Doyle, you would think they would want to do more of a further investigation mm -hmm. i don't know but maybe they're just tired that day and was like nah. there's nothing yeah. going on in the world <laughs> self garroting and done <laughs> log out <laughs> clocked out uh. there are other things edwards continued he was garroted with a boot lace yet he always wore slip-on shoes and Edwards found meaning in seemingly insignificant details, the kind that Holmes might note, particularly the partially empty bottle of gin by his bed. To Edwards, this was a clear sign of the presence of a stranger, since Green, an oneophile, had drunk wine at supper that evening and would never have followed wine with gin. Brief pause while I Google what oneophile is and it oneophile. is spelled o-e-n-o-p-h-i-l-e oneophile oh wow it just means a connoisseur of wine so he was a wino so no gin so no gin yeah uh i have never heard that word in my life nope. apparently it just means somebody who's a serious lover and consumer of wine and knows a lot about it that is a not me <laughs> 
Whoever did this is still at large, Edward said. He put a hand on my shoulder. Please be careful. I don't want to see you garroted like poor Richard. Before we parted, he told me one more thing. He knew who the American was. <laughs> the American voice on the answering machine. I'm assuming that's what they're talking about. Ooh. Right? Yeah, that's yeah. the only American I can think of. Yeah. Oh my god. The American who asked that I not use his name lives in Washington, D.C. After I tracked him down, he agreed to meet me at the Timberlakes pub near DuPont Circle. I found him sitting at the bar, sipping red wine. Though he was slumped over, he looked strikingly tall, with a hawkish nose and a thinning ring of gray hair. So he's the despicable me guy. <laughs> Groot. <laughs> Groot. <laughs> uh, he appeared to be in his 50s and wore blue jeans and a button-down white shirt, with a fountain pen sticking out of the front pocket like a professor. After pausing a moment to deduce who I was, he stood and led me to the table in the back of the room, which was filled with smoke and sounds from a jukebox. We ordered dinner, and he proceeded to tell me what Edwards had loosely sketched out, that he was a longtime member of the Baker Street Irregulars and had, for many years, helped to represent Conan Doyle's literary estate in America. It is his main job, though, that he has given him a slightly menacing air, at least in the minds of Green's friends. He works for the Pentagon in a high-ranking post that deals with clandestine operations. One of Donald Rumsfeld's pals at Edward, as Edwards described him. The American said that after he received a Ph.D. in international relations in 1970 and became an expert in the Cold War and nuclear doctrine, he was drawn into the Sherlockian games and their pursuit of immaculate logic. I've always kept the two worlds separate, he told me at one point. I don't think a lot of people at the Pentagon would understand my fascination with a literary character. He met Green through the Sherlockian community, he said. As members of the Baker Street Irregulars, both had been given official titles from the home stories. The American was Roger Prescott of Evil Memory, after the American counterfeiter in The Adventure of the Three Garadubs. Green was known as The Three Gables, after the villa in The Adventure of the Three Gables, which is ransacked by burglars in search of a scandalous biographical manuscript. In the mid-1980s, the American said he and Green had collaborated on several projects. As the editor of a collection of essays on Conan Doyle, he had asked Green, whom he considered the single most knowledgeable living person on Conan Doyle, to write the crucial chapter on the author's 1924 memoir. My relationship with Richard was always productive, he recalled. Then, in the early 1990s, he said they had a falling out. As a result, he added, of a startling rupture in Green's relationship with Dame Jean. Oh, interesting. Richard had gotten very close to Dame Jean and was getting all sorts of family photographs, having represented himself as a great admirer of Conan Doyle, he said. And then she saw something in print by him and suddenly realized that he had been representing his views very differently, and that was kind of the end of it. She's like, oh, hell no. 
what was the print <laughs> like it said she saw something in print like it was in the local paper not and she saw something he tweeted yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's all we say now is mm. something on the internet did it the american insisted that he couldn't remember what green had written that upset her but edwards and others in holmesian circles said that the reason nobody could recall a specific offense was that Green's essays had never been particularly inflammatory. According to R. Dixon Smith, a friend of Green's and a longtime Conan Doyle book dealer, the American played on Dame Jean's sensitivities about her father's reputation and seized upon some of Green's candid words, which had never upset her before, then twisted them like a screw. Edward said of the American, I think he did everything he possibly could to injure Richard. He drove a wedge between Richard and Dame Jean Conan Doyle. After Dame Jean cast Green out, Edwards and others noted, the American grew closer to her. Edwards told me that Green never got over the quarrel with Dame Jean. He used to look at me like his heart was breaking, he said. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. That's sad. Also, I smell a rat. <laughs> There's just a lot of drama. There is a lot of drama. Huh. <laughs> when I pressed the American further about the incident, he said simply, because I was Jean's representative, I got caught in the middle of it. Soon after, he said, the good feeling of cooperation by Green toward me ended. At Sherlockian events, he said, they continued to see each other, but Green always reserved would often avoid him. Smith had told me that in Green's final months, he often seemed preoccupied with the American. He kept wondering, what's he going to do next? During the last week of his life, Green told several friends that the American was working to defeat the crusade against the auction, and he expressed fear that his rival might try to damage his scholarly reputation. On March 24th, two days before he died, Green learned that the American was in London and was planning to attend a meeting that evening at the Sherlock Holmes Society. A friend said that Green called him and exclaimed, I don't want to see him. I don't want to go. Green backed out of the meeting at the last minute. The friend said of the American, I think he scared Richard. As I mentioned some of the allegations of Green's friends, the American unfolded his napkin and twitched the corners of his mouth. He explained that during his visit to London, he had offered counsel to Charles Foley, whom he now served as a literary representative, as he had for Dame Jean, and discussed the sale of the archive at Christie's. But the American emphasized that he had not seen or spoken to Green for more than a year. On the night that Green died, he revealed with some embarrassment he was walking through London with his wife on a group tour of Jack the Ripper's crime scenes. He said that he had learned only recently that Green had become fixated on him before his death, and he noticed that some Sherlockians blurred the line between fandom and fanaticism. It was because of the way people felt about the character, he said. Holmes was sort of a vampire-like creature, he said. He consumed some people. Okay, Caitlin, I want to pause right here because I want us to talk about parasocial relationships. This is something that I only recently learned about. Mm -hmm. And once 
I start talking about it, you'll be like, okay, that I that makes a whole lot of sense. But it has kind of come into the um, pop culture sphere because of uh, what is the show? It's called Married at First Sight. Oh, mm-hmm. which apparently is a really really good show. But there is a therapist on there that is really very like well versed in parasocial relationships Mm -hmm. and she talks a lot about it has a really big social media following and she explains that parasocial relationships are one-sided relationships where one person extends emotional energy interest and time and the other party the persona Mm. or basically like like it could be a celebrity Mm -hmm. um an actor a singer or weirdly a lot of times it can be newscasters because they can have a perceived very intense relationship with people who develop parasocial relationships because they come in your home and they are looking into your face Mm -hmm. in the camera like looking you in the eyes so people feel like they are speaking to you And uh, like I said before, sorry, I lost my train of thought, but okay, I'm going to read this definition again. Parasocial relationships are one-sided relationships where one person extends emotional energy, interest, and time, and the other party, the persona, is completely unaware of the other's existence. Parasocial relationships are most common with celebrities, organizations such as sports teams, or television or movie stars so an example of this and she breaks it down as there being three levels of parasocial relationship Uh one is the normal and healthy kind of fandoms that people get into where like oh my gosh i love that person if they drop an album i'm listening to Mm -hmm. it if they're in a movie i'm gonna go see it and a lot of times we have like an association with them from childhood because they were like a sexual awakening in some way or and i mean we Jake all mm-hmm, october sky you know mm-hmm. but what we didn't do with jake which was move on to phase two mm-hmm. of the parasocial relationship where you genuinely believe that you if you just like crossed paths with that person that basically from then on you would be like destined to be together and your personality starts to cross over into being like infinitely interchangeably like non-interchangeably linked with that person and you actually can start to self-isolate and become obsessive over them and even that can be fine Mm -hmm. to a degree where I'll throw myself under the bus here I have always loved Harrison Ford and as a teenager in my like formative years I was obsessed with those movies all of the movie like memorabilia the behind the scenes stuff Mm -hmm. I wanted Indiana Jones like apparel all of that and I love that character. I love Harrison Ford. I've seen every movie he's been in. But do I believe that I was destined to be with him forever? 
Yes. Maybe a little bit. <laughs> but <laughs> but it would be a May Ming Dynasty romance. Let's just let's just clear that up right now. Jen was completely devastated when his plane crashed. Yes, my dad called me to let me know that so that I wouldn't see it online. (laughs) So that I wouldn't be alone when I found out that information. So, (laughs) which is actually very sweet. But when I, and this is equated to the same level of like, um, crying when you like are at a concert and you're like in the presence of somebody you've always like loved Mm. um i remember when i went to comic con Mm. and i don't think you were with me at this one Mm -hmm. but i saw sean astin give a panel and when he and i like lord of the rings i would not be who i am today without lord of the rings billy boyd signed yes middle earth poster yes but when he came out on the stage and sat down I was just suddenly overwhelmed with this like surge of emotion and I started like not like sobbing ugly crying but Mm -hmm. just became very emotional and had that like you know lump in my throat and it wasn't because I was like oh my god I want to launch myself at him but it was like seeing him and him being so real to me and then I was like oh my god he's sitting in front of me and he's talking and like that's Samwise Gamgee and that is more of the healthy okay side Mm -hmm. of two when you move to three it's game over you are obsessed you that is stalking um there was a there's a famous tiktok influencer who has had a stalker for a long time and she's been very open about and like she shares the name of this stalker publicly on social media she moved homes because he was stalking her he found where her new home was and when she was in the shower this is the scariest shit i've ever heard in my life when she was in the shower he came into her home and like wrote a message in the steam on her shower mirror like in the bathroom nope and she then made a tiktok and was like so and so whatever your name is like i know you were in my home like basically the world is watching you if you do anything like what and she has a restraining order against him and what does that do yeah nothing nothing basically like when and if something bad happens they'll just know who did it and they'll have to prove it but how fucking scary is that like that person cannot be stopped and they are dangerous at that point so i would in this instance yes sherlock holmes or Mm -hmm. conan doyle yes and i started thinking about that when they were saying how obsessive people became with like taking ownership of that character yeah and could there possibly be some sort of parasocial element going on to maybe somebody who was so this is wild speculation but somebody that felt so possessive and attached to Sherlock Holmes yeah that they did not like what Green was doing or that he was going to like deface the name of the their person in some way and they were like he's got to go that would be level three of parasocial train of thought Mm -hmm. better than an air compressor yes sorry to go off on that tangent but I find like bizarre psychology so fascinating Mm -hmm. because when somebody dies at the hands of another person there's always a 
a slow thread of escalation. And with the obsession surrounding the Sherlock Holmes world, could a parasocial, unhealthy, level three relationship be involved in that? Right. It wouldn't shock me at all. Also, y'all be really careful and safe out there because there are some weirdos afoot. Yes, there are. <laughs> Truly. Gosh. Yeah. No, that is an interesting train of thought, though. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Take it away. I've said the word parasocial too much in the last five <laughs> minutes. <laughs> uh. The waiter had served our meals, and the American paused to take a bite of steak and onion rings. He then explained that Conan Doyle had felt oppressed by his creation. Though the stories had made him the highest-paid author of his day, Conan Doyle wearied of constantly inventing problems and building up chains of inductive reason, as he once said bitterly. In the stories, Holmes himself seems overwhelmed by his task, going days without sleep and, after solving a case, often shooting up cocaine. Oh, God. A 7% solution. In order to spell the subsequent drain and boredom, But for Conan Doyle, there seemed to be no similar release, and he confided to one friend that Holmes is becoming such a burden to me, it makes my life unendurable. I wonder if J.K. Rowling felt that way about Harry Potter, or has felt that way. I mean, it, it makes sense. Yeah. You've created something that has morphed into an entire universe outside of your control over it. But you'll never not be intimately tied to it. Mm-hmm. That would be I can't even fathom of that. I mean, until of course one day when we're when we're so famous. Oh well, <laughs> y'all we'll help get there a, when we get there. Y'all help us get there. Like and subscribe. Like and leave subscribe us five review. <laughs> Thank you. Venmo at <laughs> <laughs> blessings. Blessings. <laughs> The very qualities that had made Holmes invincible, his character admits of no light or shade, as Conan Doyle put it, eventually made him intolerable. Moreover, Conan Doyle feared that the detective stories eclipsed what he called his more serious literary work. He had spent years researching several historical novels, which, he was convinced, would earn him a place in the pantheon of writers. In 1891, after he finished The White Company, which was set in the Middle Ages and based on tales of gallant, pious knights, he proclaimed, Well, I'll never beat that. The book was popular in its day, but it was soon obscured by the shadow of Holmes, as were his other novels, with their comparatively stilted, lifeless prose. The same thing happened with J.K. Rowling, and she released those other books and after mm -hmm. the Harry Potter series, and I mean, they've... I honest, it sounds so bad, but I can't even remember what the other one was called. I couldn't tell you. I made it maybe halfway through that book and I was like... The Cursed Child or whatever? That one are you talking about? It was some... I think it was called... It it had the word vacant in it. Maybe it was like the vacancy. I don't know. It was something. And yeah, I... Don't know. Yeah, same. After Conan Doyle completed the domestic novel, a duet with the occasional chorus in 1899... Andrew Lang, a well-known editor who had helped publish one of his previous books, summed up the sentiment of most readers. It may be a vulgar taste, but we decidedly prefer The Adventures of Dr. Watson with Sherlock Holmes. Conan Doyle was increasingly dismayed by the great paradox of his success. The more real Holmes became in the minds of readers, 
the less the author seemed to exist. Finally, Conan Doyle felt that he had no choice. As the American put it, he had to kill Sherlock Holmes. Conan Doyle knew that the death had to be spectacular. A man like that mustn't die of a pinprick or influenza, he told a close friend. His end must be violent and intensely dramatic. For months, he tried to imagine the perfect murder. Then, in December 1893, six years after he gave birth to Holmes, Conan Doyle published The Final Problem. The story breaks from the established formula. There is no puzzle to be solved, no dazzling display of deductive genius. And this time, Holmes is the one pursued. He is being chased by Professor Moriarty, the Napoleon of crime, who is the organizer of half that is evil and nearly all that is undetected in this great city of London. Moriarty is the first true counterpart to Holmes, a mathematician who is, as Holmes informs Watson, a genius, a philosopher, an abstract thinker, tall and ascetic-looking. Pause while I look up ascetic. These are fancy words. I'm very... I need beginner level. (laughs) Some of these words, I'm like, shit. Okay. The word ascetic means characterized by or suggesting the practice of severe self-discipline and abstention from all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. So I guess you think of somebody that's like a super straight edge, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, Mm -hmm. eats vegetables. Yeah. Hmm. Never heard that word in my life. What is most striking about the story, though, The two great logicians have descended into a logic. They are paranoid and consumed only with each other. At one point, Moriarty tells Holmes, This is not danger. It is inevitable destruction. Finally, the two converge on a cliff overlooking Reichenbach Falls in Switzerland. As Watson later deduces from evidence at the scene, Holmes and Moriarty struggled by the edge of the precipice before plunging to their deaths. After finishing the story, Conan Doyle wrote in his diary with apparent delight, Killed Holmes. He did. (laughs) XOXO. (laughs) Gossip girl. (laughs) He was probably like, thank fucking god long <laughs> swig of whatever he was drinking and then the backlash from oh, all gosh, the, the sherlockians uproar. being like, like when in twilight <laughs> breaking dawn what is that part two where mm-hmm. carlisle's head gets ripped off oh my god i was like that is not how the fucking book went no when that happened in the theater i remember i was at every midnight career people stood up out of their seats i was like <laughs> was like what that was another and had that been the actual ending yeah that movie would have been redone by like the uproar oh my god for sure i mean but that was very effective because when they did that you were like nobody's safe what the hell Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they have taken the book and thrown it out the window Ah. 
man dang yeah to kill your character though that's mm-hmm. and to be delighted in it <laughs> that it wasn't like lot. i grieved for days it was just like kill Holmes. <laughs> he's dead <laughs> yay dancing on <laughs> suck it holmes <laughs> okay finally meanwhile all these men are absolutely gutted oh my gosh yeah Ugh. as the american spoke of these details he seemed stunned that conan doyle had gone through with such an extraordinary act still he pointed out conan doyle could not escape from his creation in england men reportedly i'm sorry <laughs> reportedly wore black armbands in mourning oh my god it makes me think of like the live strong <laughs> it does in america clubs devoted the cause let's keep homes alive were formed okay i will never let anybody throw shade at taylor swift fans again honestly this though. is on the same level of crazy this is though conan doyle insisted that Holmes' death was justifiable homicide Readers denounced him as a brute and demanded that he resuscitate their hero. <laughs> After all, no one had actually seen him go off the cliff. Oh, okay. You know what? Mm-hmm. As a like, as someone who was really into books, I yeah. would grasp at straws too. Yeah, if I had been reading the hunger games because i was gripped Ooh. by that mm-hmm. if there had been a scene like that with like you know no body, katniss or no Pete- death. yeah mm-hmm. i would be like i refuse to accept it as green wrote in a 1983 essay if ever a murderer was to be haunted by the man he had killed and to be forced to atone for his act it was the creator turned destroyer of sherlock holmes in 1901 under increasing pressure conan doyle released the hound of the baskervilles about an ancient family curse but the events in the story antedated Holmes' death then two years later conan doyle succumbed completely and began writing new home stories explaining less than convincingly in the adventure of the empty house that Holmes had never plunged to his death but merely arranged it to look that way so he could escape from moriarty's gang oh man <sighs> so close he wasn't actually dead <laughs> and then all the Sherlockians are like, oh, we, yes, knew we, we knew it. We knew it. Man. Oh, man. I can only imagine. I remember reading The Hound of the Baskervilles in middle school. Mm-hmm. And I honestly don't remember anything about the premise of it other than it genuinely scared the shit out of me like it is a very creepy and disturbing short story yeah it's well worth a read just from my remembering the feeling of like dread pooling in my stomach when i read it but i could not tell you what it is about Hmm. but yeah it's really creepy the american told me that even after conan doyle died Holmes continued to loom over his descendants. Dame Jean thought that Sherlock Holmes was the family curse, he said. Like her father, he said, she had tried to draw attention to his other works, but was constantly forced to tend to the detective's thousands of fans, many of whom sent letters addressed to Holmes, requesting his help in solving real crimes. In a 1935 essay entitled, Sherlock Holmes, the God. G.K. Chesterton observed of Sherlockians, It is getting beyond a joke. 
the hobby is hardening into a delusion. Okay, so we're now on the very toxic side of the second level of parasocial relationship. At least somebody said it. Mm-hmm. This is so fascinating, too, to me. Like, why Sherlock Holmes? Like, it wasn't that there wasn't other literary characters and other things people were interested in going on. I mean, this was 1935, not like 1785. So there was like, there was plays, there was books, there was operas, there was all kinds of things. But why why Holmes? You know? It really is a captivating character, though. Yeah. Like, even for someone who didn't read the books or whatever, Mm -hmm. I know, and it's because of this, like, because they made it big. And, so I guess it doesn't yeah. answer your question, but, like, I know who Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. is and, like, yeah, I mean, I love Nancy Drew. I love mysteries and That's stuff. That's true. Like, Nancy Drew, Hardy Boys. Um, What was another? Did you ever read Encyclopedia Brown? I know books? of it, but yeah. I didn't read it. Those were really big in the 90s. I feel like for its genre, mm-hmm. like, Nancy Drew and Sherlock Holmes are the two that stand out the mm-hmm. most in, like, yeah. the mystery type aspect. Yeah. I agree. That's just me, but... Yeah. I also cling to that whole... Well, it was providing a very, like, a hardcore rational solution every time there was a story Mm -hmm. to seemingly irrational events. And we're talking about the time of the First and the Second World War when things were just, I mean... Chaotic. Chaotic and horrific and we all know what humanity did to each other in both of those world wars so like here's a world that would always come back to being under control mm-hmm. and explained and a character that and was like was in depth. above it like yeah. there were multiple stories mm-hmm. it wasn't yeah. just a like quick three book it was like multiple stories and mm-hmm. and yeah again i thought this fucker was real for the longest time yeah that's very true like yeah yeah. These people, some of them think he's real. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, you think you're reading true accounts, which mm-hmm. I think makes it more interesting. Yeah. I don't know. There's probably, too, an element of, like, any character you super resonate with. You mm-hmm. try to put yourself in their shoes or you feel like you are them in some way. Mm-hmm. And you have all of these men during this very tumultuous time in history in Europe with the wars probably wishing that they were somebody that seems to be so in control so perceptive so able to get to the bottom of whatever's going on and to stop it just something yeah in a time when they had absolutely no control over anything going on politically you know just the war like i it was just a different time yeah it was just Yes, and despite that, the fact that it wasn't just, like, super popular in that little window, but Mm -hmm. that it continued, like you said. we're in the 90s, or even now. Yes. Even you in middle school or Mm -hmm. grade school reading it. Yep, and then the movies that came out with... Yeah. Those were in the early 2000s, like, 2010s, which are really... Those were good, good big-budget movies with, like, big-name actors and i'm surprised we haven't gotten like some sort of oh my god there is a bbc show that's super popular that's got the guy that plays bilbo baggins in the oh, oh yes yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And it's called just Sherlock. Yes, yeah. Yes, and yes, it yes. is really, really good. I completely forgot about that show. And there's all of the British little like crime serial dramas. It's just such a good genre. Mm-hmm. Like Conan Doyle did it so well. Like yeah. he, he got really lucky with how he wrote it and mm-hmm. how he how, how these people f- fucking ran with his character. Yeah. yeah. And it seems to be the the foundation from which every other thing has branched mm-hmm. off of it. And the achievement of creating something like that is astounding. But then for him to be like writing in my diary like, yes, I finally fucking <laughs> killed him. Fuck, I gotta bring him back. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. I can't get away from this guy. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very oh, yeah. fascinating world, and it makes me want to go read some of the stories. I know, it makes me want to watch the movies. To see if I, would I have gotten into it as hardcore as these people did? I don't know, maybe. I don't know. Several actors who played Holmes were also haunted by him, the American said. In a 1956 autobiography, In and Out of Character, Basil Rathbone, who played the detective in more than a dozen films, complained that because of his portrayal of Holmes, his renown for other parts, including Oscar-nominated ones, was sinking into oblivion. The public conflated him with his most famous character, which the studio and audience demanded he play again and again, until by the end he too laminated, lamented, yeah, lamented that he could not kill Mr. Holmes. He laminated himself into the floor <laughs> to escape. That was the only way. The only. (laughs) Another actor, Jeremy Brett, had a heartbreak. Oh, gosh. Had a breakdown while playing the detective and was eventually amended to a psychiatric ward. What? Where he was said to have cried out, damn you, Holmes. What? Whoa. Now, that's an HBO Max miniseries I'd watch. Damn you, Holmes. Yeah. Wow. Ooh. At one point, the American showed me a a thick book which he had brought to the pub. It was part of a multi-volume history that he was writing on the Baker Street Irregulars and Sherlockian scholarship. He had started the project in 1988. I thought if I searched pretty assiduously, I'd find enough material to do a single 150-page volume, he said. I've now done five volumes for more than 1,500 pages, and I've only gotten up to 1950. Whoa. He added, it's been a slippery slope into madness and obsession. Mm. There's such an interesting thread of madness. Yeah, maybe there's a Sherlock curse. Mm, This just needs to become a curse podcast. All we do is talk about curses. (laughs) Gotta get back to those tombs. Mm -hmm. As he spoke of his fascination with Holmes, he recalled one of the last times he had seen Green three years earlier, at a symposium at the University of Minnesota. Green had given a lecture on the Hound of the Baskervilles. It was a multimedia presentation about the origins of the novel, and it was just dazzling, the American said. He repeated the word dazzling several times. It's the only word to describe it. Dazzling. (laughs) And as he sat up in his chair and his eyes brightened, I realized that I was talking not to Green's Moriarty, but to his soulmate. Then, catching himself, he reminded me that he had a full-time job and a family. 
The danger is if you have nothing else in your life but Sherlock Holmes, he said. In 1988, Richard Green made a pilgrimage to Reichenbach Falls to see where his childhood hero had nearly met his demise. Conan Doyle himself had visited the site in 1893, and Green wanted to repeat the author's journey. Standing at the edge of the falls, Green stared at the chasm below, where, as Watson noted after he called out, my only answer was my own voice reverberating in a rolling echo from the cliffs around me. Ooh. That just gave me a little shiver. (laughs) By the mid-1990s, Green knew that he would not have access to the Conan Doyle archive until James Dean... (laughs) James... James Dean. (laughs) Until James Dean died. I'm delusional at this there are, point. There are too many names. <laughs> Until Dame Jean died, presuming that she bequeathed. I hate that word. I don't like, I don't like that word. Because it's I, too close to bequeathed. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> like, that's what I want to say. Could bequeathed be a word that's like <laughs> the blessing of a job well done? <laughs> we're unhinged oh gosh (laughs) do you remember that one um card in the cards against humanity when everybody was playing that game and there was only one pack they hadn't the didn't have the 14 million like extension packs yet Mm -hmm. and i have never like there are still some laughs that live rent-free in my brain where, like, Aww. you felt like you were going to pass out because you couldn't breathe. And one of the cards in that pack was a mouse queef. <laughs> what? <laughs> that makes no <laughs> sense. <laughs> and the card that somebody had put down, it was like... <laughs> What I thought I heard on Christmas morning, but was actually a mouse queen. I'm keeping this all in. <laughs> Please do. This is a whole part of scene. <laughs> all because of the word bequeathed. I can't do it. <sighs> it is not our fault that the English language has too many words weird. that are too similar for their own good. Yes. Okay. Presuming Dame Jean bequeathed the papers to the British Library. In the meantime, he continued researching his biography, which he concluded would require no less than three volumes. The first would cover Conan Doyle's childhood, the second, the arc of his literary career, and the third, his descent into the kindness, his descent into a kind of madness. Mm. Relying on public documents, Green outlined this last stage, which began after Conan Doyle started using his powers of observation to solve real-world mysteries. In 1906, Conan Doyle took up the case of George Adalji, a half-Parsi Indian living near Birmingham, who faced seven years of hard labor for allegedly mutilating his neighbor's cattle during the night. Jesus Christ. Conan Doyle suspected that Adalji 
had been tagged as a criminal merely because of his ethnicity, and he assumed the role of detective. Upon meeting his client, he noticed that the young man was holding a newspaper inches from his face. Aren't you a stigmatic? <laughs> <laughs> Stain too. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Can't he say, don't you in English speak, in American English speak? Conan Doyle asked, don't you have an astigmatism? <laughs> yes, Adalji admitted. Oh gosh. <laughs> Conan Doyle called in an ophthalmologist who confirmed that Adalji's malady was so severe that he was unable to see properly, even with glasses. Jeez. Conan Doyle then trekked to the scene of the crime, traversing a maze of railroad tracks and hedges. I, a strong and active man, in broad daylight, found it a hard matter to pass, he later wrote. Indeed, he contended, it would have been impossible for a nearly blind person to make the journey and then slaughter an animal in the pitch black of night. A tribunal soon concurred, and the New York Times declared Conan Doyle solves a new Dreyfus case. Hmm. Conan Doyle even helped in solving a case of a serial killer after he spotted newspaper accounts in which two women had died in the same bizarre manner. The victims were recent brides who had accidentally drowned in their bathtubs. Conan Doyle informed Scotland Yard of his theory, telling the inspector, in an echo of Holmes, no time is to be lost. The killer dubbed a bluebeard of the bath. (laughs) The bluebeard of the bath was subsequently caught and convicted in a sensational trial. That is, I have never heard of that. I've never heard of that. We're going to have to talk about the bluebeard of the bath at some point, Hmm. I guess. In 1914, Conan Doyle tried to apply his rational powers to the most important matter of his day, the logic of launching the First World War. He was convinced that the war was not simply about entangling alliances and a dead archduke. It was a sensible way to restore the codes of honor and moral purpose that he had celebrated in his historical novel. That year, he unleashed a spat of propaganda, declaring, Fear not, for our sword will not be broken, nor shall it ever drop from our hands. In the home story, his last bow, which is set in 1914, the detective tells Watson that after the storm has cleared, a cleaner, better, stronger land will lie in the sunshine. Mm. That was not the vibe I got from reading and or watching All Quiet Quiet on the Western Front. It's just basically a bunch of children Mm. blowing each other up in ditches blindly for days on end starving rats everywhere like it's not it is horrific yeah there we like to romanticize war in the aftermath as a way of making it appear less like the literal hell on earth that it is yeah though conan doyle was too old to fight Many of his relatives heeded his call to arms, including his son Kingsley. 
The glorious battle Conan Doyle envisioned, however, became a cataclysm. The products of scientific reason, machines and engineering and electronics, were transformed into agents of destruction. Conan Doyle visited the battlefield by the Somme, where tens of thousands of British soldiers died, and where he later reported seeing a soldier drenched crimson from head to foot, with two great glazed eyes looking upwards through a mask of blood. In 1918, a chastened Conan Doyle realized that the conflict was evidently preventable, but by that time, 10 million people had perished, including Kingsley, who died from battle wounds and influenza. After the war, Conan Doyle wrote a handful of home stories, yet the field of detective fiction was changing. The all-knowing detective gradually gave way to the hard-boiled dick. (laughs) Wait, y'all, we did not read that wrong. It literally says the hard-boiled dick. Oh, gosh. Who acted more on instinct and Jen than on reason. Mm. In The Simple Art of Murder, Raymond Chandler, with, while admiring Conan Doyle, dismissed the tradition of the grim logician and his exhausting concatenation of, of insignificant clues, which now seemed like an absurdity. Meanwhile, in his own life, Conan Doyle seemed to abandon reason altogether. As one of Green's colleagues in the Baker Street Irregulars, Daniel Stauschauer relates in a 1999 book, Teller of Tales, the life of author Conan Doyle, the creator of Holmes, who began to believe in ghosts. He attended seances and received messages from the dead through the power of automatic writing, a method akin to that of the Ouija board. Mm. Mm, Yeah, hell no. Mm -hmm. Hell no. During one session, Conan Doyle, who had once considered the belief in life after death as a delusion, claimed that his dead younger brother said, It is so grand to be in touch like this. Ew. Ew, no. <laughs> Nowadays, be like, yo, what's up, bitch? Yeah. <laughs> what's that like on the other side? <laughs> Ask JC what the hell he was thinking mm-hmm. for all of history. One day, Conan Doyle heard a voice in the seance room. As he later described the scene in a letter to a friend, I said, Is that you, boy? He said in a very intense whisper and a tone all his own, Father, and then after a pause, Forgive me. I said, There was never anything to forgive. You were the best son a man ever had. A strong hand descended on my head, which was slowly pressed forward, and I felt a kiss just above my brow. Are you happy? I cried. There was a pause, and then very gently, I am so happy. The creator of Sherlock Holmes had become the St. Paul of psychics. Conan Doyle claimed to see not only dead family members, but fairies as well. She was a fairy. That audio has produced some internet gold. He championed photographs taken in 1917 by two girls that purported to show such phantasmal creatures, even though, as one of the girls later admitted, I could see the hat pins holding up the figures. I've always marveled that anybody ever took it seriously. Conan Doyle, however, was convinced, and even published a book called the Coming of Fairies. 
whoa, I did not, I never heard of that. Interesting. He opened the psychic bookshop in London. Oh. Ooh, bitch, if we ever go somewhere, like, go. That would be awesome. Guys, help us get rich so we can do this kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. We can investigate more in-depthly for you guys. Blessings. I would love to find... Remember when we covered Leonardo Cinciulli and she had a whole freaking, like, personal library of, like, ancient spell books and shit? Oh my god. That would be amazing to see. Yeah, so interesting. There has to be stuff like that that's still surviving because yeah, everything else is. Bolts. Yeah, I, I'm sure you're right. Don't hang on to your spellbooks, people. <laughs> the world needs to see them, but not read them out loud. I suppose I am Sherlock Holmes, if anybody is, and I say that the case for spiritualism is absolutely proved, he declared. In 1918, a headline in the Sunday Express asked, Is Conan Doyle mad? (laughs) Yes. Yes, there may be a touch there. For the first time, Green struggled to rationalize his subject's life. In one essay, Green wrote, It is hard to understand how a man who had stood for sound common sense and healthy attitudes could sit in darkened rooms watching for ectoplasm. Green reacted at times as if his hero had betrayed him. In one passage, he wrote angrily, Conan Doyle was deluding himself. One thing Richard couldn't stand was Conan Doyle's being involved with spiritualism, Edward said. He thought it was crazy. His friend Dixon Smith told me that had to be an American. Yeah. (laughs) That's an American. Dixon Smith. Dixon Smith. Yep. It was all Conan Doyle. He pursued him with his mind and body. Green's house became filled with more and more objects from Conan Doyle's life, long forgotten propaganda leaflets and speeches on spiritualism, an arcane study of Boer War. Boer War. (laughs) Previously unknown essays on photography. I remember once I discovered a copy of a duet with an occasional chorus, Gibson said. It had a great red cover on it. I showed it to Richard and he got really excited. He said, God, this must have been the salesman's copy. When Green found one of the few surviving copies of the 1887 Beaton's Christmas Annual with a study in Scarlet, which was worth as much as $130,000, he sent a card to a friend with two words on it. At last. Green also wanted to hold things that Conan Doyle himself had held. Letter openers and pens and spectacles. Okay, parasocial relationship. Okay. Toxic level two. You know what? He could have killed himself. Like, I'm starting to get, like... Are we maybe starting to see the descent into madness that seems to follow so many people that become very attached to... Sherlock stuff, Sherlockian world. Sherlockians. He would collect all day and all night, and I mean night, his brother, Scarard, told me. Green covered many of his walls with Conan Doyle's family photographs. Okay. He even had a piece of wallpaper from one of Conan Doyle's homes. Obsession is by no means too strong a word to describe what Richard had, his friend Nicholas Utenchen, the editor of the Sherlock Holmes Journal, said. It's self-perpetuating and I don't know how to stop, Green confessed to an antiques magazine in 1999. 
By 2000, his house resembled the attic at Poulton Hall. Only now, he seemed to be living in a museum dedicated to Conan Doyle rather than to Holmes. I have around 40,000 books, Green told the magazine. Then, of course, there are the photographs, the pictures, the papers, and all the other ephemera. I know it sounds a lot, but you see, the more you have, the more you feel you need. And what he longed for most remained out of reach, the archive. After Dame Jean died in 1997 and no papers materialized at the British Library, he became increasingly frustrated. Where he had once built his conjectures about Conan Doyle's life, he now seemed reckless. In 2002, to the shock of Doyleans around the world, Green wrote a paper claiming that he had proof that Conan Doyle had a tryst with Jean Leckie, his delicately beautiful second wife, before his first wife, Louisa, died of tuberculosis in 1906. Dang. Mm. Though it was well known that Conan Doyle had formed a bond with Leckie during his wife's long illness, he always insisted, I fight the devil and I win. Oh my god, shut up, Conan Doyle. Okay. Louisa, poor Louisa. No. God. And to maintain an air of Victorian rectitude, he often brought along chaperones when he and Leckie were together. Hmm. Green based his allegations on the 1901 census, which reported that on the day the survey was taken, Conan Doyle was staying at the Ashdown Forest Hotel in East Sussex. So too was Leckie. Conan Doyle could not have chosen a worse weekend on which to have a private tryst. Green wrote, yet Green failed to note one crucial fact also contained in the census report. Conan Doyle's mother was staying at the hotel with him, apparently as a chaperone. How old is he? Ew. You know nobody's getting some when your mom is the chaperone. (laughs) Later, Green was forced to recant in a letter to the Sherlock Holmes Journal, saying, I was guilty of the capital mistake of theorizing without data. Still, he continued to lash out at Conan Doyle, as Conan Doyle once had at Sherlock Holmes. Edwards recalled that in one conversation, Green decreed Conan Doyle was unoriginal and a plagiarist. He confessed to another friend, I've wasted my whole life on a second-rate writer. Oh, God. Wow. That's a very sudden and extreme turn. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's harsh. I think he was frustrated because the family wasn't coming to any agreement, Smith said. The archive wasn't made available, and he got angry not at the heirs, but at Conan Doyle. Last March, when Green hurried to Christie's after the auction of the papers was announced, he discovered that the archive was as rich and as abundant as he'd imagined. Among the thousands of items were fragments of the first tale that Conan Doyle wrote at the age of six, illustrated logs from when Conan Doyle was a surgeon on a Scottish whaling ship. What the? I'm sorry. Hold up. We got his whole (laughs) life and... They failed to mention he was a surgeon on a Scottish... Whaling ship. What the fuck? Whoa. Why do you need a surgeon on a whaling ship? You harpooning each other? Well... Also, like, that disgusts me. Think of how unsterile uh, that is. I'd rather have just died. From the one book that I read about whaling, which is um, called In the Heart of the Sea, and that 
is about like New England whaling. Jen and I, I read Wikipedia <laughs> plots on movies. Jen reads intelligent books. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> yes. But. I think you would actually really like that book because it reads like a novel and it was mm-hmm. one of those like nonfiction books that reads like a novel. But I got interested in it because of the movie in The Heart of the Sea oh. that is basically the true events that inspired Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. And whaling, at least when they would do it in New England, was very intense like they would basically go out in this little boat Mm -mm. and they would wait for a massive fucking whale to come along and they would harpoon it and that whale would of course like fight for Mm -hmm. its life and so they would just be like launched across the surface of the ocean yeah and they would be fighting with it sometimes for days and so there would be injuries that happened because they were hanging on to this rope. Dang. They would be at times reaching out and trying to like stab the whale when it would kind of like stop. Sometimes they'd get in fights with it where it would be like thrashing and people would, you know, get cracked by the tail. That I mean, Dang. it was like violent and messy. And so... And so we have Conan Doyle as a surgeon. Yeah. And I mean... Where the fuck did that come from? That... That's crazy. I want to know more about that, honestly. But yeah, I would not want to have sure been on a whaling a book ship. I'm sure there's a out there that one of those Sherlockians, Doylians wrote. <laughs> I'm sure there is. In the 1880s, letters from Conan Doyle's father, whose drawings in the asylum resembled the fairies that his son later seized upon as real, a brown envelope with a cross and the name of his dead son inscribed upon it, The manuscript of Conan Doyle's first novel, which was never published, a missive from Conan Doyle to his brother, which seemed to confirm that Green's hunch had been right, and that Conan Doyle had in fact begun an affair with Lecky. Jane Flower, who helped to organize the papers for Christie, told reporters, The whereabouts of this material was previously unknown. And it is for this reason that no modern-day biography of the author exists. Hmm. Meanwhile, back at his home, Green tried to piece together why the archive was about to slip into private hands once more. According to Green's family, he typed notes in his computer, the trail of evidence, which he thought proved that the papers belonged to the British Library. He worked late into the night, frequently going without sleep. None of it, however, seemed to add up. At one point, he typed in bold letters, stick to the facts. After another sleepless night, he told his sister that the words, that the world seemed, yeah, you're gonna hit it, Jen. (laughs) That the world seemed Kafka-esque, and Kafka was a famous philosopher. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Several hours before Green died, he called his friend, Yuchen. Yuchen? Yutichin? Yutichin? That is a weird name. U-T-E-C-H-I-N. Yeah. At home. Maybe last name. Yeah. Green had asked him to find a tape of an old BBC radio interview, which Green recalled, quoted one of Conan Doyle's heirs, saying that the archive should be given to the British Library. Yutichin said that he had found the tape, but there was no such statement on the recording. Green became apoplectic and accused his friend of conspiring against him. 
as if he were another Moriarty. Finally, Yudachin said, Richard, you've lost it. One afternoon while I was at my hotel in London, the phone rang. I need to see you again, John Gibson said. I'll take the next train in. Before he hung up, he added, I have a theory. I met him in my hotel room. He was carrying several scraps of paper on which he had taken notes. He sat down by the window, his slender figure silhouetted in the fading light, and announced, I think it was suicide. He had sifted through the data, including details that I had shared with him from my own investigation. There was mounting evidence, he said, that his rationalist friend was betraying signs of irrationality in the last week of his life. There was the fact that there was no evidence of forced entry at Green's home, and there was the fact, perhaps most critically, of the wooden spoon by Green's hand. He had to have used it to tighten the cord, like a tourniquet, Gibson said. If someone else had garroted him, why would he need the spoon? The killer could simply use his hands. He continued, I think things in his life had not turned out the way that he wanted. This Christie's sale simply brought everything to a head. He glanced nervously at his notes, which he strained to see without his magnifying glass. That's not all, he said. I think he wanted it to look like murder. He waited to assess my reaction, then went on. That's why he didn't leave a note. That's why he took his voice off the answering machine. That's why he sent the message to his sister with the three phone numbers on it. And that's why he spoke of the American who was after him. He must have been planning it for days, laying the foundation, giving us false clues. What? Dang. Meanwhile, back to when I was like, people don't plan those out for days. They just do it on a whim. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Retract that. Genevieve Wilhelm, MD. (laughs) Uh, Yes. That is so... What? I knew that in detective fiction, the reverse scenario generally turns out to be true. A suicide is found to have been murder. As Holmes declares, the resident patient, this is no suicide. It is a very deeply planned and cold-blooded murder. There is, however, one notable exception. It is eerily enough in one of the last Holmes mysteries, the problem of Thor Bridge, a story that Green once cited in an essay. A wife is found lying dead on a bridge, shot in the head at point-blank range. All the evidence points to one suspect, the governess, with whom the husband had been flirting. He had been flirting. Oh, had been flirting. He just, like... <laughs> glances at her ankles as she walks out of the room (laughs) he's gotta go (laughs) (laughs) yet Holmes shows that the wife had not been killed by anyone rather enraged by jealousy over her husband's illicit overtures to the governess she had killed herself and framed the woman whom she blamed for her misery damn all of conan doyle's stories it digs deepest into the human psyche and its criminal motivations as the governess tells holmes When I reached the bridge, she was waiting for me. Never did I realize till the moment how this poor creature hated me. She was like a mad woman indeed. I think she was a mad woman, suddenly mad with the deep power of deception which insane people have. 
I wondered if Green could have been so enraged with the loss of the archive that he might have done something similar, and even tried to frame the American whom he blamed for ruining his relationship with Dame Jean and for the sale of the archive. I wondered if he could have tried, in one last desperate attempt, to create order out of the chaos around him. I wondered if this theory, however improbable, was in fact the least impossible. I shared with Gibson some other clues I had uncovered. The call that Green had made to the reporter days before his death, saying that something might happen to him. A reference in a home story to one of Moriarty's main henchmen as a garroter by trade, and a statement to the coroner by Green's sister, who said that the note with the three phone numbers had reminded her of the beginning of a thriller. Interesting. After a while, Gibson looked up at me, his face ghastly white. Don't you see? He explained. He staged the whole thing. He created the perfect mystery. Man, that's not how I saw this going. No, I did not see that coming. It does. It does. Before I went back to America, I went to see Green's sister, Priscilla West. She lives near Oxford in a three-story, 18th-century brick house with a walled garden. She had long, wavy brown hair, an attractive brown face, and small oval glasses. She invited me inside with a reticent voice saying, Are you a drawing room person or a kitchen person? (laughs) I shrugged uncertainly, and she led me into the drawing room, which had antique furniture and her father's children's books on the shelves. As we sat down, I explained to her that I had been struggling to write her brother's story. The American had told me there was no such thing as a definitive biography, and Green seemed particularly resistant to explication. Richard compartmentalized his life, his sister said. There are a lot of things we've only found out since he died. At the inquest, his family and most of his friends had been startled when Lawrence Keene, who was nearly half Green's age, announced that he had been Richard's lover years ago. No one in the family knew that Green was gay, his sister explained. It wasn't something he ever talked about. As West recalled other surprising fragments of Green's biography, travels to Tibet, a brief attempt at writing a novel, I tried to picture him as best I could with his glasses, his plastic bag in hand, and his wry smile. West had seen her brother's body lying on the bed, and several times she told me, I just wish, before falling silent. She handed me copies of the eulogies that Green's friends had delivered at the memorial service, which was held on May 22nd, the day Conan Doyle was born. On the back of the program from the service were several quotes from Sherlock Holmes stories. I caught a glimpse of a great heart as well as of a great brain. He appears to have a passion for definite and exact knowledge, and his career has been an extraordinary one. After a while, she got up to pour herself a cup of tea. When she sat down again, she said that her brother had willed his collection to a library in Portsmouth, near where Conan Doyle wrote the first two home stories, so that the other scholars could have access to it. The collection was so large that it had taken two weeks and required twelve. Holy shit! What? Twelve truckloads to cart it all away. Holy cow! Um, 
Holy I'm cow. sorry. If you had told me that it had been 12 trash bags full, that would have been. I would have been like, that's excessive. What the load. actual fuck? Oh. Dang. It was estimated to be worth several million dollars, far more in all likelihood than the treasured archive. He really did not like the idea of scholarship being put second to greed, West said. He lived and died by this. Mm. She then told me something about the archive, which had only recently come to light, and which her brother had never learned. Jane... I'll say that again. <laughs> James Dean. <laughs> Dame Jean Conan Doyle, while dying of cancer, had made a last-minute deed of apportionment, splitting the archive between herself and the three heirs of her former sister-in-law and Conan Doyle. What was being auctioned off, therefore, belonged to the three heirs and not to Dame Jean, and though some people still question the morality of the sale, the British Library had reached the conclusion that it was legal. Green also could not know that after the auction on May 19th, the most important papers ended up at the British Library. Dame Jean had not allotted these documents to the other heirs, and had willed many of them to the library. At the same time, the library had purchased much of the remaining material at the auction. As Gibson later told me, the tragedy is that Richard could have still written his biography. He would have had everything he needed. Ugh. Two questions, however, remained unclear. How, I asked West, did an American voice wind up on her brother's answering machine? I'm afraid it's not that complicated, she said. The machine, she continued, was made in the United States and had a built-in recorded message. When her brother took off his personal message, a pre-recorded American voice appeared. I then asked about the phone numbers in the note. She shook her head in dismay. They added up to nothing, she said. They were merely those of two reporters her brother had spoken to and the number of someone at Christie's. Hmm. Mm. Finally, I asked what she thought had happened to her brother. At one point, Skerard Lanson Green had told the London Observer that he thought murder was entirely possible, and for all my attempts to build a case that transcended doubt, there were still questions. Hadn't the police told the coroner that an, that an intruder could have locked Green's apartment door while slipping out, thus giving the illusion that his victim had died alone? Wasn't it possible that Green had known the murderer had simply let him in? And simply let him in? And how could someone, even in a fit of madness, garrot himself with merely a shoelace and the help of a spoon? Hmm. His sister glanced away, as if trying one last time to arrange all the pieces. Then she said, I don't think we'll ever know for sure what really happened. Unlike in detective stories, we have to live without answers. Ooh. That just gave me a chill, like I a full body chill. Need answers. Oh, that was the end, y'all. Whoa. So he did it. So I guess. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't even one fourth of the way through this. I said, there's nowhere in my mind where I think he did it. No. But now, like, after. But once they started to break down each individual element instead of looking at it in a, as a lump of suspicious mm -hmm. things it made sense and whereas at the beginning i was going well surely he couldn't have garroted himself because look 
the out of all the ways to kill yourself yeah. like that's just not the one but if somebody else had done it nobody is going to just leave the murder weapon right there they would have taken the spoon with them see and that's the flaw in his yeah like but it makes sense that he wanted it to be a mystery yeah like, wow hmm. i love this one that, i really liked I loved how it was written. that I um, really I didn't like was a lot sucked. of the words that I had to fucking learn, but <laughs> hey, we got some good, some good uh, comic relief out of <laughs> some, some good... of those words. Uh, if you guys want a shirt that says "bequeathed" on it, <laughs> let us know. Bequeathed. I'll make it for you. <laughs> oh my poor Bob! Uh, oh gosh, Kathy, don't listen said... to this. <laughs> I don't know why y'all have to use those words. <laughs> Oh gosh! I'm sorry. I'm gonna tell her this week. <laughs> oh my god! Don't listen. If you do, just be prepared. I'm sorry. <laughs> I absolutely loved reading the story, and I loved the way that the author David Grant was talking about the people descending into madness. Yeah. But he was slowly unraveling how the vic- the supposed victim himself was descending into madness and how almost everybody who was intimately acquainted with Sherlock Holmes's character whether it was Conan Doyle or the people that became obsessive mm-hmm. with him as a believing he was real or the um like the actors that played oh. him that they all became insane to some degree i mean didn't they say that one of the actors that played him ended up in a psychiatric ward screaming damn you holmes like what it's interesting how people took like i mean great case Mm -hmm. but like i think the greater scheme to it all like what truly astounds me is how much of an impact sherlock holmes truly made on people like it's weird oh yeah and we i think just barely touched on it i bet if we there has to be so many things written on it homes convention oh my god that would be really interesting i would have to keep my mouth shut a murder mystery dinner oh yes yes i have always heard if you have the chance to host one or do one, you should because they're really one. fun. We could totally do one out at the farm and have fun with Ooh. it because we got the barn. We got the all all the fields. We can make it happen. Ooh. That would be fun. I don't know. That was a good one, though. Yeah. Let us know what you guys think if you guys were shocked at the ending. Yes, please do. And also, I am going to ask people to do something that we haven't before and if you really enjoyed this case if you want to hear more blind read cases drop us a comment go to instagram and find the post for this episode part two of the strange death of a sherlock holmes fanatic by david grand it'll probably be the most recent one Mm -hmm. under the pen posts on the feed drop in the comments the titles of other blind read cases that you would like whether you have actually read the entire article yourself or you've just read the synopsis and been like 
oh my god, I would really like to hear this one blind read. Or just cases in general, but specify, you know, we're not going to do a blind read of just like a 200 word people Mm. magazine article. It has to be these long form, juicy, almost like short stories. Yeah. Yeah. You guys got to wow us. Yes. We got to be blown away by your suggestion Mm. so we don't have to find it ourselves (laughs) online. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, we would really like for you guys to go and um, be a part of the podcast. Yes. Tell us what you guys want. Tell us what you guys like. Yes. And tell us what you don't like, but also be kind about it, please. Yeah. I'm still sick. Mm -hmm. We're both mothers. Our children are mean enough to us. Please be kind. They really are. Both physically, emotionally, mentally, all of the above. guys. Um, And that is our ad for birth control. (laughs) Um, Use Campiness Cancelled 15 to get... (laughs) 15% off. Affiliate sponsorship coming. We have not... Um, but we do have now speaking of affiliate sponsorships we have now partnered with a wonderful company that we will link in the Mm -hmm. show notes we're also going to be posting about them more on our instagram feed but they are called turning hearts Mm -hmm. and you guys this company is amazing and they make these tiny little it's not even a device it's basically a metal weatherproof sticker sticker. yes and it is designed to be stuck on the back of a headstone a memorial plaque i guess yeah an urn or even uh, you could even put it on a picture of somebody in your home or if they were significant to a business or organization yes a, a loved one yes and Turning Hearts has made it such that when you hold your phone over the QR code on this little metal sticker, a window will open up and through their site, you can upload basically a library of photos, videos, um, I believe also written content about that person's Mm -hmm. life as a way to tell their story, to bring them to life, and really to immortalize them in a way that flowers and itself doesn't do yeah like when you first showed me this Mm -hmm. this would be so perfect for um if you guys listen to our prom night murders oh my gosh we went and actually visited Mm -hmm. their um grave site yeah and it would have been amazing to click be able to click that qr code yeah and even I mean, not only see the pictures, but mm-hmm. to read about the case. Like, yes. if it was a cold case, yes. imagine mm-hmm. somebody being able to do that. Imagine seeing your pets or whatnot. Like, yes. And with Christmas coming up, it would make such a great gift for, I Absolutely. mean, anyone. Death is something we all experience. It's mm-hmm. something we all share. Yeah. And it's not something, if we learned anything from working in a nursing home... Death is not the thing to be afraid of. Mm-mm. It's the unlived life yeah. to be afraid that we should be afraid of. Getting to the end of that life and being like, "Well, fuck!" Like, didn't do what I, I wanted to do. Yeah. Didn't. Yes. And this is a great way of showing, either for yourself or your loved ones, 
the life that you lived, you know, in a visual sense Mm -hmm. that it was rich and meaningful. And I love that song. I believe that it's, um, I don't know if it's the Macklemore song, Glorious or Good Old Days, but where he says... Good old days. Good old days. But where he says, you know, we die twice. The first time is when we're put in the grave. The second time is the last time anybody says your name. Mm -hmm. And this product, it is really good. Oh my God, I've gotten chills so many times. But this product is a way of ensuring that that no one's forgotten. No one is forgotten. And is also a way of bringing back into existence Mm -hmm. people who historically maybe have been forgotten a Jane Doe a Mm -hmm. person that who the rest of their family died but there was left behind videos and photos Mm -hmm. about them that otherwise just kind of would get lost somewhere so I really am going to be talking about this all the time yeah this is a great product this is yeah it's something that's different and it's And this is not a sponsored ad. Mm -mm. We are affiliate partners with Turning Heart. So if you guys click our link, we get a small commission off of that purchase just because it's our affiliate link. But we are not sponsored by Turning Hearts. We are not paid by them to talk about this product. something that we truly enjoy ourselves. Yes. And think is a great product. Yes, absolutely. So... Yeah. Check it out. We'll link it in our show notes. Mm-hmm. Link yep. it on our post. Yes. But until then, like, follow, subscribe, All review. Th- yes. Be nice. Send, send gmails of your own spooky stories to campingiscanceled at gmail.com. And now that we're out of Thanksgiving, we hope that you are getting in the holiday spirit. Yay. Yay. We'll catch you back here next week when we talk about the crazy, crazy ex-girlfriend killer, Ezra McCandless. McCandless. That's not her real last name, so I don't feel bad butchering it. She's also the killer. She's so. also the killer and she's crazy. So we will be telling that story and you're not going to want to miss it. Bye. Bye.